Today we will be talking about a psalm of lament. We will be in Psalm 13 this morning. So you can turn to Psalm 13. We're going to read that first thing. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Lord, uh, give insight to your word. Open our ears and our eyes, mine included. Teach us this morning what you would have from your word. In Christ's name, amen. The last two categories of psalms that we looked at were historical last week and praise the week before that. And they had a common theme of remembering. How remembering the past is not just good, but it's actually necessary for us to remember. We need to know the truth of the past in order to learn what to not do in the future. We need to learn from the truth of the past so we can learn what to avoid and what to pursue after and also how to pass these things down to future generations, to our kids and their kids and their kids after them. We we saw how specifically learning from the past has two big-time effects on the Christian. And it's this. Remembering the past leads us to obedience and holiness, and remembering the past leads to praise and worship. But what happens, and here's the big question for today, what happens when the things that have occurred in my life don't lead to praise and worship? What happens when my life and the events of it lead to lament? To sorrow. Lament is defined, if you Google it, as a passionate expression of sorrow or grief through words or actions, and sometimes both. The Bible actually records several reasons why people lament, and I just want to hit a few of these really quickly. The first one is when we've lost someone or something dear to us. And you can remember Jesus and Lazarus with his friend when he died. Jesus wept. Now, whether He wept over the loss of his friend or maybe the family's unbelief may be open for discussion, but he wept. The second reason the Bible gives us is that our hearts are broken. In fact, Psalm 34, 18 tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. So that's an emotion that we feel. You can remember Jesus in the garden the night before he was crucified. He said in a very heartfelt prayer to the Father, take this cup from me. His heart, he knew the separation that waited for him on the cross from the Father. But he ended with a phrase that we'll talk about again this morning. He said, not my will, but yours be done. The third thing, reason why the Bible tells us that people might lament is when we just feel hopeless in a situation. I think Psalm 13 kind of gets at that a little bit, especially at the beginning. How long is this going to last, God? 
You just felt hopeless. I want to bring a, a, a Bible character up to you, and we'll talk about him again later today too, but it's King Jehoshaphat. Okay, Old Testament character, I think the fourth king of Judah. He was in a situation where it was hopeless, and he recognized his limits. He recognized his earthly power, and he said, I need you, God. Fourthly, the Bible records another reason why people lament, and it's this. When we sin, or when we see other people in sin, this is the kind of lament that almost always has repentance tied to it. You can think about Psalm 51, David's reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba, and there's repentance involved in that. We grieve at the evil that we see rising up in us. I hope we ought to, but we also grieve when we see that kind of thing rising up in the world around us, rising up in people that we care for, that we really love. If we don't lament over our own sin, it's, it's like we don't understand the destructive power that it has in our life. If we write it off like it's no big deal and we don't grieve over it, it's like we don't understand it. And we need to understand it. Repentance from sin and salvation from sin are really intertwined in Scripture. When a Christian sees another person in sin, they don't just rush to condemn them or to judge them. No. They do the hard thing. They do the loving thing. They reach out and they call them back to a relationship with Christ, to fellowship with the Father, to repentance. Man, no one would do that hard work if they didn't really care for the other person. Now, Jesus, he never lamented over his own sin because he never sinned, but he shared that human experience of lament along with us. Just a few days before his crucifixion, he's looking over Jerusalem and he says he says this and you can just kind of feel the lament in this phrase he says oh Jerusalem Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how often would i have gathered your children together as hens gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing you can just hear the pain and the sorrow in Jesus voice when he says this he was lamenting Now, my purpose in reminding us of Jesus' lament this morning is to show that proper lament is not sinful. Now, notice that I conditioned it with a a word there, proper lament, because I think the Bible does the same thing. There's proper lament, there's improper lament, there's proper grief, godly sorrow, and there's improper sorrow, grief. They don't come from the same source, and they produce very different things. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow produces neither of those things, only death. So even though the cries of the saved person and the cries of the unsaved person, they might sound similar, but you know what? The motivation behind those cries is very different. God, listen to me. You ever prayed that before? Hear me. That's not just a cry that comes from believers. People who don't know the Lord say this kind of thing all the time. It's a common lament among the saved and the unsaved. The motivation for the one who doesn't have their hope in Christ, it comes from a place of pain. It comes from a place of wanting relief no matter what because they just can't take it anymore. 
something in their life doesn't match up with their hopes. It doesn't match up with their plans that they had made, their expectations for their life. And so in desperation, they're crying out to anybody or anything who might listen and be able to help. You might hear it this way, especially on social media. Send your prayers, your good thoughts, and your happy vibes my way. Shotgun approach to needing help. However it works, if there's anybody out there that can help, please send help. And, and it's coming from a place of pain, and so we shouldn't ignore that kind of thing, but it reveals the expectation of the person saying it. Got to cover all of my bases just in case. If there's a God up there, I hope he hears me, and I hope he can do something to fix what the problem is here. But the motivation for the person whose hope is set in Christ It's very different. It comes from a place of wanting God's will to happen no matter what. And that's significantly different. It's the same thing. Something in their life, a believer's life, doesn't match their hopes or their plans or their expectations for their life. And they're just desperately crying out. But not just to anybody, not just for good vibes and happy thoughts. They're crying out to the only one who they know can save, who they know can help. Because God is there and he is listening. I hope you can see the difference there. And so how is the lament of the believer and the lament of the unbeliever so different? Because in the middle of their pain, their eyes are set on very different things. In lament, the unbeliever's eyes are fixed on the cause of the problem, while the believer's eyes are fixed on the solution to the problem. You see the difference? Again, Jesus in the garden is our example here. Mark 14, verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus stated the cause of his lament. He was soon going to become sin and bear the wrath of God's righteous justice. But his eyes were fixed on the Father, his will, And Jesus showed us that we can express our laments and our pains and be honest with God while submitting to him. That's the big thing that rounds out everything that we're going to talk about today. We can express our feelings to the Lord. That's not a sinful act, but we can do it while submitting to him at the same time. Do we think that Jesus just stuffed his emotions down? You know, down deep where they'd never come out. He just put on a happy face and pretended like everything was okay. But you don't see that. Not at the Lord's Supper. Not on the cross. That wasn't Jesus. He didn't do that. He cried. He sweat drops of blood. He was honest with God. He expressed his feelings, but they were tempered with the eternal. In our times of lament, may we be like Jesus. Honest about our feelings and focused on the Father. It's good that we don't focus entirely on our feelings. I think every one of us can understand why that would be a good thing to not focus all on our feelings, but I don't think it's good for us to ignore them either. Is there validity to what Jesus was pouring his heart out to the Father about in the garden? Absolutely. But because his eyes were fixed on the solution, which was the will of the Father and not his own, He was willing to go to the cross. Why? Because he trusted the Father's will. He trusted the Father. Do you trust God in your life, in your seasons of lament and pain? I won't ask you if you do it like Jesus because I already know the answer to that. 
But do you aim for that in your seasons of lament? Even when it seems like he's not there, Jesus expressed that very sentiment on the cross. He borrowed from Psalm 22. You'll remember this phrase. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job felt this way too. Job 23, verses 8 and 9, he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. My God, why have you forsaken me? Or as David says in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? If I had to guess, we can all identify with what Job is saying here. I just can't see you, Lord. So again, if today your heart is closer to lament than praise, you're not alone. But I feel like I need to remind us of what Job says right after this in the next couple verses, 16 and 17 of Job 23. After lamenting how he couldn't see God, he says this, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet... I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. So despite the reality of Job's emotions and the darkness that Job felt, he knew God heard him. He wasn't silenced by the darkness. It didn't force him to be quiet. His voice was still getting through to the Lord. He knew he was there and he knew he heard him. When we feel as though the darkness around us just covers us like a thick blanket, Do we still trust the will of the Father? Do we still pray for his will to be done and not our own? Let me also remind us of what David said right after he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, verses 3 through 5, he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So notice that word yet, that's both from Job and from David. They're not denying the pain. See that. They're not denying the struggle, the hurt, the trouble, the lament. But this word shows us that they shift their focus. Yet. All of these things are true. Yet. Dark days are not a new thing for the people of God. Matthew Henry, lived a long time ago, says this, Long afflictions try our patience and often tire it. It's a common temptation when troubles last long to think it will last always. Unhappiness then turns to despair, and those that have long been without joy begin at last to be without hope. So if you feel like that's where you are or that's where you're sliding towards dark days that seem to last forever, like there's no relief coming, take solace in the fact that you're not alone and that hope still remains. Let's go back to Psalm 13 and let's work through these verses in chunks here for just a few minutes. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 13, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Did you notice the uh, repetition of that phrase? How long, O Lord? Boy, that seems really familiar based on what Job said. He said, I go forward, backward, left, right. I I don't see him. 
I don't feel him. I don't know that he's there. David's saying, how long are you going to hide your face from me? Now, in regards to verse 2, it's a right and it's a good thing to take counsel from brothers and sisters who are Christians. Like We should listen to their counsel. That's part of why God gave us the church, put us into the body, is that we could take and heed counsel of mature believers to correct us and set us back on the right path. Certainly, we should take the advice and counsel of God from his word. But David here reveals something different. It's almost like there are multiple voices in his head saying, go this way, think these thoughts, do this sort of thing. And he's saying, Lord, how long am I going to have to take my own counsel? And I think there's a connection here between when he says taking my counsel in my soul and having sorrow in my heart. I don't know about you guys. When I'm at my wit's end, when I'm frustrated, when I'm discouraged, when I'm unhappy, maybe I'm even angry about a certain situation or a certain thing. When I look inward for counsel, that's dangerous. That's, that's really, I mean, that's the last place I should look and probably the last place you should look to. When you're angry and frustrated and despondent and numb, looking inward for direction is a, is a bad idea. David's felt the same way. How long am I going to have to look inward? This is not working. When I turn inward, sorrow is sure to follow. We shouldn't fix our eyes on the cause of the problem, but you know what? We shouldn't fix them on ourselves either. Our eyes should still be fixed outwardly to the solution of our problems, to the will of the Father in Jesus Christ. So don't count on your own counsel to lead you out of the darkness count on the one who is the way, the truth, the life, the light of life. David lamented the fact that his enemies boasted in their position over him. To be high or exalted meant to be successful, almost to be like beyond reach, like no one could take them down. Nobody could knock them off their place. They looked down in arrogance at David, and man, and he felt it deeply. Look at verses three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So it's big in our culture now to make sure that everybody is seen, everybody is heard. Believe it or not, this is kind of what David is asking God for right here. He's saying, hear me, see me. Consider my plight, regard me, he says. His current life experiences were leading him to believe that God couldn't see him, that God couldn't hear his prayers. Are you there this morning? Do you feel that? Are your life experiences making it seem like God is no longer there, that he no longer cares? In David's evaluation, as we can see, God had just left him for his enemies to conquer him. Something had happened that caused separation between him and God. And so David is saying, pay attention to me. Lord, set your eyes back on me. I need help. But let me ask just an obvious question. Had God gone anywhere? I hope we can answer that with certainty this morning. God hadn't moved. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God hadn't gone anywhere. God could still hear David. And in reality... God was still in control of everything that David was lamenting about. But David couldn't see it that way in the moment. 
you and I, in the moment of despair and lament, we often can't see God in the right way. Was David wrong to lament before the Lord? No. Are we wrong to lament before the Lord? No, but just like David, we oftentimes don't have all of the information. So David did what we still do. We plead with God to help us to feel heard and seen and understood and loved. And so David uses this phrase. He says, lift up my eyes. I think this is really cool. What has David just been lamenting over? He's just been saying, God, where are you? How long? How long are you going to hide your face from me? He's been lamenting that God couldn't see him, that he'd forgotten him. So what does he ask God for? To remember him and to give light to his eyes, enlighten him, to open his eyes, to consider here. It's the opposite of forgetting to answer, the opposite of hiding his face. David's saying, consider me. To enlighten here is the very mercy needed by one who has been perplexed and filled with distrust and sorrow. David is asking for the right things. And I wonder in our lament, do we ask for the right things? Or do we just ask that it's over? Believing that God remembers, that God hears, that God sees, that he cares, and that God knows us, boy, it shakes us from the kind of sleep that David mentions here. It's a sleep that feels like the end, the sleep of death. It just feels like it's never going to end. But it's not the end because God gives light to our eyes to our perception, to our vision. He answers us with the light of the gospel, with the light of the cross, the light of Christ. Look at verse 4. In regards to this verse, there is no enemy who has the power to prevail over a child of the king. There isn't. Paul makes this abundantly clear in his writings in the New Testament. But I want to think David's underlying concern here was not just for himself, but it was also for the namesake of the one true God, of Jehovah. Because if David's enemies saw him fall, then they would maybe think that God was powerless. If they saw God's chosen king struck down and overtaken and defeated, then they might think that they were stronger than God. And David wanted to be clear that that wasn't the case. Think about every miracle that was performed for God's people in the Old Testament. And you can just start in Egypt when they're leaving there and the 10 plagues and then all the way through the desert. We talked a little bit about those last week, but think about all of these things. Every victory there was won by the hand of the Lord himself and not from the people, by his power alone. David would just need to think back to what Moses said. The Israelites in Exodus 15, they were singing a song to the Lord and they said this, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Guys, God's got a vested interest in his own glory. We should have it too. But he's the one who claims the ultimate victory. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. David says, But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David is speaking in the past perfect tense here when he says, I have trusted. So it's something that he did in the past. I have trusted. But it's also something that he's continuing 
to do now. Look at the progression that we see here in these verses. He says, I've trusted in your steadfast love. It's referring to faith. He's got faith in the love of God. So faith leads to rejoicing, and rejoicing leads to something specific. Do you see what it is? leads to singing. Look back at the journey of human emotions that we've traveled in just these six verses of chapter 13. He started off, David did, just, I mean, headlong for despair. He didn't know where God was, if God was still there, and then he ends up singing. Faith, trust, this is not in what we do, not in what we see, but it's in the continued love of God that leads to rejoicing, that leads to salvation. And then when we rejoice in our salvation, that leads to singing praises to God who is faithful. William Plumer says, God's favors should awaken gratitude. And gratitude demands a song for its expressions. So David says, I will sing to the Lord. It's going to feel strange at times. Sometimes it might even feel a little hypocritical. But in the end, the proper response to lament is what? Worship. It's worship. A lot of times it will be singing. Could this be why Hebrews thirteen fifteen tells us to offer a sacrifice of praise? Because it's not always easy. Some days it is absolutely a sacrifice to thank God for whatever situation you're in. That verse says this, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Is it right to sing praises even when we don't feel like it? The author of Hebrews certainly thinks so. I think David does too. So how do we do that? brothers and sisters, when the Lord seems so far from us sometimes? I think the answer is actually simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. I think it's this. It's the same theme that we've talked about the last two weeks. We remember. We remember his sacrifice, that he took the righteous wrath of God for your sin, for my sin. We remember his resurrection, that he overcame sin and death and the grave We remember that this world is currently not as it should be, but it's not as it will always be. So however long the time of suffering is for the righteous, it will not always last. When our focus shifts from inward counsel to the truth of the resurrected Savior, our times of lament can be followed up with times of joy in God's perfect time. So David starts this song with sadness, but he ends it in joy. You could be singing a song like this from David today, maybe the first few verses, but remember God's promises. Remember his faithfulness. The dark night has an end. Turn to Psalm 30 with me. This is also a song of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help. You've healed me. O Lord, you've brought my soul up from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. 
As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. You've clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Did you hear that? There's a couple familiar verses in there. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This does not mean that all of a sudden one morning you're going to wake up and your problems are going to be gone. I wish that that might be the case. It'd be easier in some regards if it were, but that's not what this means. This does, though, inform every Christian about how we should walk through seasons of lament with a biblical mindset. Being real about what's happening in our lives, but remembering and looking forward to the truth of what's coming, the truth of what is. One more text I want us to look at as we close today. Flip back to uh, Second Chronicles chapter 20. I want to revisit King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. Judah, he had some issues, especially later on in life. But overall, he was a really a pretty good king who led people to trust in the Lord. This story, as you'll see, is a pretty good example of that. A little bit of background. Judah was in trouble. At least three of their enemies had teamed up together and were closing in. And they were ready to wipe them out. And so you might expect the king to be confident and brave and just, you know, put his head down and go into battle, guns blazing, so to speak. But look at chapter 20. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and you will save. And then he goes on to to just recount the fact that their enemies are on their doorstep. And we'll pick up the story in just a moment. But look at what we just read. The king did not gather his brave warriors. He did not gather the biggest guys. He didn't come up with a brilliant military strategy. He instituted a nationwide fast. He brought everybody together for church, to seek the Lord, to pray together. He lamented to God over their situation. He cried out for help. Look down at verse 12. This is kind of the keystone for me of this story. He's still praying to the Lord. He says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Did you catch that? Look at where his eyes were focused. Not on his enemies, not even on his own resources. They were on the Lord. 
the only one who could really save them. And he knew it. He knew they were outnumbered. He knew that they were dead to rights. They had no chance. And so instead of setting his eyes on the enemy, the problem, instead of setting his eyes on his own wisdom, he put them on the Lord where they belonged. Now, I I feel like I have to point a couple of other things out from this story because it's just so good. Look at verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Okay, this isn't really a surprise. Everybody came to this, but I think it's interesting that it's pointed out to us here. Every person in the country, including the children, including the women, including all of the mightiest warriors, everybody that was there, they saw their king broken before the Lord. They saw him humbled before the Lord in need of help, but confident in God that he would help him, that he was hearing them. Just skip down to verse 18. It says that King Jehoshaphat was bowed down before the Lord, and that had an effect on everybody else who was watching. Their posture changed just as his did. He was bowed down before the Lord, and so everyone else fell down before the Lord in worship as well. Guys, men specifically this morning, fathers, husbands, leaders, we set the tone by our actions and by our posture in the home, in the church, at our jobs. We set the tone and people are watching. We must be the ones who lead in submission to the will of the Lord, not in arrogance, not in despair, and not in our own strength. Where are your eyes set when there's problems in your house? Where are your eyes set when there's problems at work, in the church? Are they on the cause of the lament? Or are they on the Lord? To finish out the story and to finish our time together this morning, I want to point out that the people of God didn't have to do a single thing in this battle. You can look at verses 21 and 22. This adds just another connection to Psalm 13 this morning. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say or sing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. They were defeated. What a brilliant battle plan. Let's get dressed up in our Sunday best and go sing at our enemies. That's, that's what he did. That was the plan. But look what God did. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's what David says at the end of Psalm 13. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Brothers and sisters, friends, even in lament, we can recognize that the Lord has dealt bountifully with us. All we need to do is look to the cross. In Christ, he has given his people every spiritual blessing and withholds nothing from them. Are you in Christ today? Are your eyes set on him as the solution or on everything else that this world throws at us? You can be found in Christ. Your eyes can be set on him. Repent and believe. Set your eyes on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Psalms like 13. I thank you that we are reminded that we're not alone in how we feel and that it's not a sin to lament. It gets to be, though, Lord, when we continually refuse to look at the solution instead of keeping our eyes on the problem. It's almost easier to do that, to keep our eyes focused there because maybe some of us just like drama. Maybe some of us like the feeling of trying to get control. But, Lord, I pray that you'd save us from that today. Help us, help us, Lord, to look to the solution and not the cause of the problem. And certainly not to look inward for our own wisdom. Lord, help us to set our eyes to the cross, to the Savior. Lord, knowing that you hear us even when it seems like you don't. Knowing that you are in control even when it might feel like you aren't there at all. Help us to remember and help us to look forward to all that you're going to do. Lord, you have not left us. You are with us and nothing can separate that. And we thank you so much for Christ, the cross, the empty tomb, and the spirit that you now give to your people. And I would pray, Lord, that you would fill us up with him today. In Christ's name, amen.